Welcome to the August 2020 episode of the JPO Podcast. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Today we'll be covering five articles from this month's print issue. We're going to start off with two trauma articles, both covering femoral flex nails, and we'll host one of the authors, a fellow New Orleanian, Mike Heffernan, to the program. And then we're going to move on to spine. There are two articles by senior author Jason Inari of CHOP, who's going to be joining us. And we're going to wrap things up with a really interesting article about little league overuse injuries and specifically how meaningful are pitch counts. We'll be joined by one of the authors, Dr. Richard of Duke, and I think that's going to be useful not only for the sports surgeons listening, but really for all of us who ever have to counsel a patient, a parent, a coach, or even family friends about pitch counts and single sport play. Now, before we dive into the material, I want to encourage everyone to check out the other POSNA podcast. It's called Interview with a PD Pod. And the latest episode features Dr. Larry Lanky, and I think will be very valuable, especially to the spine surgeons listening, but hopefully to everyone. So with no further ado, let's get to it. For the next portion of the show, we're going to talk about femur flex nails. We've got two relevant articles in this month's issue of JPO. The first one we'll just discuss very briefly was out of CHLA by Siddiqui et al. with senior author Ken Illington. They looked at 58 femurs treated with flexible nails. 32 were length unstable, and they compared those to 26 that were length stable. They found no difference in outcomes and concluded something that a lot of us probably suspect or at least wonder about. Uh, They concluded that flex nails are effective for length unstable fractures without any further complications. Next, we're going to move to an article by one of my partners here at Children's Hospital of New Orleans, Dr. Michael Heffernan, who will be joining us on the program. And in this study, the authors retrospectively looked at 85 femur fractures treated with flexible nails over six years, 14 of which required open reduction. Open reduction was more likely for distal third fractures, high energy injuries, and greater displacement on the AP x-rays preoperatively. As expected, these cases took longer, probably because there were repeated attempts at closed reduction before moving to open reduction. Open reductions were not associated with the patient's age, the patient's size, the time between injury and surgery, or the surgeon's years in practice. In conclusion, the authors recommend that surgeons have a lower threshold to open reduce patients with these characteristics rather than continuing to struggle with closed reduction. And again, those are distal third fractures, high energy fractures, and those with substantial coronal displacement. I believe it was on average between three and three and a half centimeters versus about two to two and a half centimeters in the uh, group that they were able to close reduce. Dr. Michael Heffernan, welcome to the show. And my first question for you is, I'm wondering what this recommendation looks like in your practice. For example, if you're struggling with a femoral shaft to get it reduced to pass flex nails, are there certain things you look for that tell you it is time to stop struggling and to go to open reduction? I would say that time is the main consideration. After about 15 minutes of struggling with a reduction, it's time to move on, in my opinion. I like that. And honestly, I think I should probably, uh, I'd probably have to look at the clock and be very conscientious about that because I think we all know that 15 minutes sometimes feels like three and sometimes feels like 45, depending on how things are going in the OR. Before you get to that point, are there any tricks you use for reduction uh, for passing nails in these tough fractures, especially maybe 
distal third or, or maybe the, the proximal ones that can be very difficult? There's a few things for reduction that I think are helpful. First thing is to confirm with anesthesia that the patient has complete relaxation so that you're not fighting the muscles. Second, there's a few things that I think we all use. Towel bumps are very helpful as well as a triangle, and that's best for correcting the sagittal plane. I use the F tool. I think that's more for, in my hands, correcting the coronal plane. If those don't work, Shan's pins also allow you to have control of both the distal and the proximal fragment and can help align the canal to be able to pass the nails. The only other point I'd make is that I do bring both of the nails to the fracture site prior to reduction. Pass the easiest nail first based on the fracture pattern. And the other thing I'd say is that with the nail, you can make small adjustments to the reduction, but it's important to have good reduction prior to passing the nails because I've always been disappointed by the nail's ability to truly reduce the fracture. There's a little bit more wiggle room than you have if you're reaming for a rigid nail, but again, I'd emphasize that a decent reduction is really important prior to passing the nails. That's great. Good tips. I uh, especially like the thought of using chance pins. I haven't used a chance pin in a flex nail case since residency, but it worked great at that time, and uh, I think I need to put that back in the armamentarium. So at this point in your career, you've published uh, several times on flexible nails. I know you have given the area a lot of thought and are very thoughtful in general when it comes to approaches to uh, different cases. So I'd like to go a little bit beyond the, uh, the article and just sort of pick your brain on these kinds of cases a little bit. So first, just generally speaking, what are your indications for, uh, for flex nails in femurs? And uh, what about length unstable fractures? So for children who are age 5 to 11, flex nails are my first option, and that's for the vast majority of those fractures. I also will use flexible nails in younger and older children who are outside of that window. Um, For the younger kids, specifically ages 3 to 5, I have a discussion with the family regarding the pros and cons of spica versus flexible nails. We discuss the family's needs, including the ability for a family member to be available to care for the child if they're in a spiky cast, and then we make a group decision using a shared decision-making model. On the other end of the spectrum, previous literature suggested that there's a weight limitation in terms of complications or a higher complication rate over 100 pounds. I definitely have been willing to use flexible nails in kids who weigh over 100 pounds, and there's more recent literature that supports that as well. In terms of length unstable fractures, similar to the other article you discussed from Children's in Los Angeles this month, I've also had success with treating length unstable fractures with flexible nails. And how about in the OR? How do you position? I typically use a radiolucent flat top table, um, and there's rare exception to that. As a, a little bit of a spoiler from some of your other research, do you factor femoral canal diameter into the uh, that decision-making model? I would say that that previous study, and it is true, our group had a previous study that looked at femoral isthmus diameter based on age and the ability to accommodate flex nails. So it really speaks to whether you can use, not necessarily whether you should use the flexible nails in a certain patient. From a strictly anatomic standpoint, we found that 75% of two-year-olds could accommodate at least a 2.5 millimeter nail. 90% of three to five-year-olds could accommodate those same 2.5 millimeter nails. That's in comparison to 95% of six-year-olds. 
So what we found were young kids can accommodate flexible nails, and in some circumstances, it really is the best choice for that age group. But again, that's a clinical decision and a shared decision with the family, and we have to keep in mind that spiky casting remains the gold standard for that age group. And how about your post-op protocol, knee immobilizer, cast otherwise? In general, I use an ACE wrap only. Occasionally, I'll use a knee immobilizer, and that's with families who have concerns about confidence for their kids, because I think the knee immobilizer can provide a little bit of security after surgery, so occasionally we use it for that purpose. In terms of a cast, I've sporadically used cast, predominantly for proximal and sometimes for distal third fractures. When I was first in practice, I used titanium nails exclusively, and some of the proximal third fractures seem to be still a little unstable after passing the nails. In the operating room, I do a stress test under anesthesia after the nails are in and assess stability similar to the way that we assess stability after a supracondylar humerus fracture. And in certain cases, that's pushed me towards using a single leg spiky cast for about two weeks after surgery. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think I might steal that and start using that in my practice, considering a single leg spike cast or a long leg cast with at least some limited pelvic band if things feel a little bit unstable. And um, we sort of hinted at it. What are your thoughts on stainless steel versus titanium? My practice and my thoughts on this have changed over time. Originally, I used titanium for every case, but I'm finding an increasing role for stainless steel. I think titanium works best when the maximum separation of the nails occurs at the fracture site, for example, in the mid-shaft. But specifically for proximal third fractures, they seem to do better with stainless steel nails. This is due to the nail shape at that point in the femur. It seems to me that no matter where the fracture occurs, generally the point of maximal nail contour separation occurs around the mid-shaft of the femur. More proximally, if you critically look at it, the nails are generally straight with minimal bend. I think for those fractures, meaning proximal fractures, flexible nails are still really effective, but that effectiveness is no longer based on the shape of the nail. Instead, it's the stiffness of the nail, and I think that's where stainless steel really comes in handy. That makes a ton of sense. I think I might steal that one from you too and start uh, thinking a little bit more about stainless steel for the proximal fractures where the nails are really acting more like a rod than like a spring. Have you found that it makes things any harder to pass the nails? With the stainless steel nails? Not really. I do think it is a consideration in terms of when you first place the nail. If the nail is too stiff, there's the possibility of going through the contralateral cortex, but that hasn't been a major issue. I would say that one of the bigger issues is if you try to play it past too big of a nail. So it makes more sense to me to, if you're in between two nail sizes, to go down a size and use stainless steel as opposed to trying to put larger titanium nails, which may be harder to pass. The only final point I'd point out about those proximal third fractures, when I made the switch to using stainless steel, I also found that I didn't need to put cast on afterwards. Interesting. And how about end caps on the nail or no end caps? No end caps in general. And post-operative protocol, uh, are you taking them out routinely? If so, when are you taking them out? I typically take flexible nails out. I typically do that after six months from the index surgery. And from my perspective, we're doing this in kids who still have a significant amount of growth remaining. And that tends to be the main impetus for why I remove the nail. In the literature, I've seen high rates of removal due to irritation or the potential for irritation at the nail sites. 
But in my practice, I just haven't seen that. Yeah, I think that's a really eye-opening point. I recommend families that we take them out uh, because they'll get irritation because that's what I learned and always thought. And I can't think of the last patient or maybe one comes to mind who actually had some irritation from the end of a nail. And after you take the nails out, are you slowing them down, putting them in a brace, doing anything to reduce the risk of fracture through that, uh, that little nail hole? I restrict sports and gym for a month, and I have no other restrictions outside of that. Fantastic. And lastly, some important questions. What is your favorite surgery? Honestly, my favorite surgery is a really complex spine that requires a lot of planning. I think I like the planning part of it and the preparation and then being able to execute that is something that I find really satisfying. I'm shocked that you didn't say ALIF. Do you want to do you want to change your answer to include an ALIF? ALIF is a great procedure as well, but uh, if that's part of the complex overall picture, then sure that too. <laughs> and lastly, POSNA or POSNA? I say POSNA. I love it. Thank you for joining us. I have learned some stuff and appreciate your time. Thanks, Carter. Appreciate you having me on. Next, we're going to go to my co-host, Craig Lauer, to discuss some articles on early onset scoliosis. These articles sort of get at the point that this is really kind of still the Wild West of pediatric orthopedics. There's not a lot of strict guidelines or evidence to go on, and we have to make a lot of decisions without solid proof behind what we're doing. These articles really get to that point and try to give us a little more guidance to follow. This is Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina. Uh, next, I'm going to discuss two articles from the August JPO, both with the same senior author, Jason Inari from CHOP. The first is entitled Expert Consensus for Early Onset Scoliosis with the lead author, Michael Hughes. And the second is Comparison of T1 to S1 Spine Height of Postoperative Rib-Based Implants with Age-Matched Peers. I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Inari uh, to discuss the work. So Jason, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Craig, thank you for having me. Uh, I think this is a great way to get uh, information out to uh, one residence, two fellows, and then hopefully some of our uh, attending colleagues. Uh, and I think podcast is a new way to, to get some of the messages across rather than through textbooks. It's the wave of the future. Um, so I did want to congratulate you and your team for having, first of all, two articles in the same journal month. And then I also just wanted to say that uh, for me, this is kind of a unique pleasure to interview you because uh, we became friends through the fellowship interview process. And I can't believe it's been about five years or more or less. Uh, anyway, we, we ended up choosing different places to train, but I think the power of POSNA and the meetings and generally the collegiality of this field has kind of helped us and, and many others from our fellowship class stay connected and grow into these roles together. So, you know, it's really rewarding for me to see surgeons like yourself, who I see as peers kind of coming into their own and becoming the next generation of thought leaders and putting some interesting work out there in a field where, uh, as we'll see shortly, there's quite a bit to learn and find out. So um, with that said, would you tell me a little bit about the development of this idea for the first paper, the expert consensus, and how you logistically pulled that off? Sure. Well, I can't uh, let you have a long open like that without following <laughs> it up. Uh, let me first by saying that, uh, you know, although I may be the senior author on uh, these two manuscripts that uh, as everybody knows, it takes a real team to get something like this into publication today. So I really have to thank those that helped get me there. Um, the fellowship class uh, from CHOP that helped with the expert consensus paper, uh, as well as our uh, thoracic insufficiency team that uh, did the lion's share of the work in regards to data collection for the T1S1 height. 
and then Pat Cahill and Jack Flynn for their mentorship through this process. Um, but in regards to how do we come up with this uh, expert consensus concept? Like you said, five, six years ago, we were residents. Uh, and then uh, not that long ago, we were fellows. And I got to watch different surgeons do uh, different operations for what I considered uh, near identical indications. And I thought to myself, you know, here we are at, at a tertiary institution with three people that would do uh, different things for uh, the exact same curve. And I have to know why. And one of the beauties of uh, the collaborative efforts of POSNA and the SRS is we get to collaborate or communicate regularly with our uh, colleagues around the world. And after talking to Jack Flynn about that, he said, you know what, let's see what other people would do for specific cases that we think would create controversy. Uh, so we listed uh, a bunch of different uh, kids that I had operated on uh, that year and put together a PowerPoint uh, and basically uh, gave sn uh, snippets of information that we knew people would want to know in regards to making a decision and then say, what would you do and why? And we sent out a, a survey to, uh, to 20 people at various time points in their career uh, and then got to look at the results. Your response rate was what, hundred percent? Yeah, believe it or not, uh, because <laughs> the email came from a former Posna president, uh, the response rate was a hundred percent. I think if you or I sent it, we would have got thirty percent if we were lucky. Um, but because it came from Dr. Flynn's email account, we had a hundred percent response rate in less than two weeks, uh, which was one, really exciting for me because it meant that we actually got all of the opinions of the people that we uh, we highlighted to look at. Yeah, that's really incredible uh, for any sort of survey. Um, so 20 experts responded to your six cases um, and overall you conclude they all agreed or what? Uh, we, we define consensus as 80% uh, agreement on a, a surgical technique or an indication for one of the, any of the six cases. And you know when we were looking at the granularity of the data, you saw that there were two situations where we, they quote unquote kind of agreed but not one either implant or timing or technique was agreed upon by these 20 uh, experts, which just goes to show you that the variability in practice uh, for how these children uh, get treated really is determined based on where you train and what you get comfortable with. And I think that was one of the main take home points of the manuscript. Yeah, there's a lot of options out there and certainly um, your familiarity with one thing is gonna make you see that as uh, a better option over something that you've maybe just heard about. I thought the, the probably the most interesting thing to me right away was if you look at case three, which is the uh, juvenile idiopathic scoliosis, the kid with this right thoracic curve of 60 degrees, the variation in people that wanted to brace, didn't want to brace versus just wanted to put magic rods in right away. Well, I, yeah, looking back, it's about half operate, half not. And the ones that aren't are doing different things. And the ones that are operating are all doing different things. Right. So how, how can we like look a parent in the eye and say, this is what you, know, you should have if you know, half of our experts are disagreeing on the treatment course for that child? Um, and I think that just goes to show you that we really don't have a great understanding of what, quote unquote, the best option is. It's what's the best option in my hands and what I have seen work really well for kids in your shoes. And I just think as long as you're having that type of conversation uh, when you're doing informed consent with families, that's what matters most. So if you could um, 
if you could kind of recommend for the rest of the community as to the things that this highlights, where the major debates are, and what what things do we need to really figure out in the coming five years? So uh, I think if I go briefly uh, through the six cases, the highlights are we still don't know uh, whether a single fusion versus growing rods for the tweeners, uh, such as the nine-year-old and spina bifida, uh, what is a quote-unquote better option? Uh, And I think age, underlying diagnosis, i.e. what type of neuromuscular disease they have, flexibility all play a role as does ambulatory status. So I think uh, the jury's still out there. Case two, the syndromic scoliosis kid. How bad is uh, 70 degrees of mid-thoracic kyphosis in regards to putting magic rods in? Mm -hmm. Should you be stuffing a seven centimeter actuator in an area where you know that you're going to have to bend a whole lot of kyphosis in your uh, magic rod to hook up to your proximal anchors? Are you just setting this child up for proximal anchor failure? Um, I think the jury's still out on that. Uh, the idiopathic patient, when do you intervene? Do you just ride this out, get them to have their triradiates close and do a single posterior fusion when they're you know, at less risk of crankshafting? Or do you put magic rods in and then do a conversion later? Something that was really near and dear to my heart was the six-year-old with SMA, because something that uh, Bob Campbell spoke a lot about was the parasol deformity of the chest. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the results, only half of the experts would treat the parasol deformity. And what uh, we really don't know is what effect that has on the pulmonary function. What we're hoping to be able to show one day is if you can keep the umbrella out by correcting the parasol deformity, you might get a more normalized uh, respiratory cycle. Um, and I was very interested to see that less than half the people that were experts for this would treat it at this point. It sounds like we really need a way to judge these outcomes more than just the structural outcomes of thoracic height, something that accounts for flexibility and function and patient rated outcomes. I think the golden goose is, can we finally find a way to tie pulmonary function into these outcomes and radiographically, we're just not there yet. Yeah. Um, let me get your thoughts then, since we're talking a little bit about um, thoracic growth and uh, and growing rods with the second paper. So um, in this paper, uh, you all looked at your large group of, we're going to call it rib-based distraction, but I'm assuming that all means vector for all of them. That's and, um, <laughs> and looking at T1 to S1 spine height compared to Demeglio data. So um, would you explain kind of why you thought this was important for the field and, and, uh, and what you saw? So this comes up because of the manuscript that has been titled The Law of Diminishing Returns. So Dave Skaggs and Woody Sankar wrote, I don't know, somewhere between seven and 10 years ago that after about six distractions, uh, traditional growing rods, you get... Uh, less and less return on the posterior distraction, and then eventually you have autofusion. Um, and then Pat Cahill wrote uh, about a decade ago that when they revised all of their uh, their traditional growing rod patients, about 11 of the 12 patients in that cohort had autofusion already. Mm-hmm. So what our, our goal was to show two things, patients that have rib-based implants, all of which were vectors for this cohort, that by staying away from the spine, you would be able to uh, obtain a T1 to S1 height that was close to quote unquote, the demiglio data. 
Uh, and then basically we wanted to just look at it by the uh, EOS classification and see if there was one group that did better than the other. Um, and that's where the impetus for the project came from. Okay. I, I thought it was interesting that, that you went by uh, T1, S1 instead of looking at mainly thoracic height. Now, do you know, were these vectors all within the thoracic levels or did they attach to pelvis or do you know the proportions of that? I would have to go back and look at the individual patients, but I could tell you probably a large majority were ripped to pelvis vector patients uh, okay. based on the fact that many of them were neuromuscular over 20, I think 22 were neuromuscular kids. A large majority of the congenital patients, you're right, are probably primarily thoracic based. But uh, I think that there's a lot of rib to pelvis patients in this cohort. Okay. Well, that would make sense for the, the T1 to S1 measurements then. What did you think about the difference in the etiology? So I don't want to steal the thunder here, but you know we saw that congenital or structural scoliosis actually got pretty close to the normal uh, the normative data in terms of the growth over the time with the growing instrumentation, whereas neuromuscular was um, drastically less, you know, average of 60% of what was predicted. Um, and that difference ended up being um, significant. So do you have any theories on why that was the case? Uh, so we have a, a couple of theories, uh, although I don't think anyone can be uh, harped on as, uh, you know, this is the definite reason why it happened. Um, what Dr. Campbell used to teach was that uh, you could actually get a congenital uh, vertebra to grow a little bit. And he, he wrote that up in JBJS back in the early or mid 2000s. Uh, and that was one of his original concepts was if you can distract across this congenital segment, uh, you can hopefully get it to grow enough that you can get it near normal expected growth. Now, I'll be honest with you, when we got the the results, we were all surprised that the congenital group got to 95%. Hot dang, so, he was right. To a point at which that we <laughs> actually had everybody go back and make the measurements again. Uh, that was that was a surprise. We also all thought that given the flexibility of the neuromuscular patients, that they were often going to have the largest percent correction and maybe have a bigger T1 to S1 correction compared to, to the normal uh, patient population. And we didn't see that. Yeah. Uh, which was a surprise as well. You know, I'm wondering if um, the congenital might be, as you inferred earlier, those are typically shorter segment growing instrumentation. And so if you're leaving a lot of the spine untouched, it's probably going to approximate normal growth. Um, and also, I, I just noticed my neuromuscular patients, I mean, they're just smaller by nature. Comparing them to normative data, they just, I mean, they're all kind of minute in stature, whether it's um, whether it's malnutrition or uh, or other due to the neuromuscular disease. Uh, I wonder if that also plays a role. I think that definitely plays a role. We talked about, you know, imagine comparing apples to oranges. And if we had a, a normative database for neuromuscular growth for each individual disease, that would be ideal. But there's such a blend of neuromuscular diseases in this cohort that that would have been, even if we tried to do a, a sub-cohort analysis, uh, we wouldn't have had enough patients um, can I ask, is, uh, are vectors the only growing instrumentation being used at CHOP currently, or is the, the cohort has uh, expanded beyond rib-based? The cohort has expanded beyond rib-based um, for, I'd say, a wide variety uh, of indications. I could tell you that traditional growing rods go in in certain patients, magnetically controlled growing rods go in in certain patients, and, you know, for 
like going back to the other paper, children with asphyxiating thoracic dystrophy or June syndrome, those kids get the uh, vector expansion thoracoplasty. Um, there are certain kids that just don't have a sagittal plane that is amenable to, to magnetically control growing rods, so they get the old school technique. I think it's really important to be able to have some versatility in regards to instrumentation type and instrumentation technique, whether or not you're doing growth guidance or uh, distraction-based. Uh, so I think it's really uh, great for the fellows that are coming in now, uh, the future trainees, but also for the patients to be able to have a, a large armamentarium of, uh, of options for them. Well, that's great. Do you think that the the results you see with Vector, at least with certain etiologies getting pretty close to the projected uh, or the expected height. Do you think that extends to those other modalities as well? Or is there something unique to the rib base? Uh, part of me wants to say, I believe that it's unique. I do think that there is likely some part of the concept of going to the ribs and staying away from the spine and maintaining mobility at the costochondral junction that limits some of the autofusion development. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, that's speculation on my part. Did you all see the law of diminishing returns with this group? We do. I am currently working on hopefully being able to answer that, but I would say, uh, you know, hold on or to be determined. All right. Very good. So uh, final takeaways, there's a lot to learn, but I think on and there's a lot of disagreement, which means we don't maybe have all the right answers, but uh, it does sound like some upside in that um, our growing instrumentation solutions have done properly, at least in certain etiologies, can replicate or at least uh, approach normal growth. As a take-home message for, for surgeons or for trainees, it's we can uh, approach uh, normal growth. We can't get there yet for these early onset kids, but you know, it means that uh, we are doing something uh, positive for them by treating them. And then if you pair that with the second paper, and it doesn't matter how you do it, and there's a wide variety of ways to do it, but as long as you do it right, you're going to have a positive impact. And with the big caveat, I'm sure Dr. Redding would advise us that a bigger box does not always mean better function, but right now all we know to do is make a bigger box. Make a bigger box, that's right. <laughs> Um, so Jason, thanks to you and your team for all the great work you're doing. Um, once again, um, this is Jason Nari from CHOP. Craig, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Craig. Next, we're going to our co-host Josh Holt in Iowa to discuss overuse injuries in little leaguers, a subject that I know is near and dear to his heart. Hey everyone, this is Josh Holt broadcasting from the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital in beautiful Iowa City where cleanup continues after the horrible storm swept through the Midwest last week, and we hope that everyone impacted by the storm is safe and that your power has been restored and that life is getting back to some degree of normal again. Unfortunately, there won't be any football played here at the university this fall, but lucky for all of you, we will continue to bring you insightful and thought-provoking interviews with the authors of the most up-to-date research in pediatric orthopedics. On this month's episode, we will host Dr. Mark Richard from the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, to discuss his recent study evaluating youth baseball players through the novel use of an elbow sleeve and sensor. In their study, entitled Youth Baseball Pitch Counts Vastly Underestimate High Effort Throws Throughout a Season, the authors compared the number of actual pitches thrown by youth baseball players with the number of high effort throws as recorded by a validated digital sensor worn by the players throughout a baseball season. In this study, the authors recruited 19 11- and 12-year-old baseball players to participate 
by wearing an elbow sleeve and sensor for an entire season. The sensor tracked the total throws and pitch equivalent high effort throws. This data was then compared with the official total pitch counts as recorded by the scorekeepers. Sensor data at the completion of the season showed a mean total throw count of 1,666, with a mean high effort throw count of 576. These data were both significantly higher than the mean official pitch counts of 168. The authors report that their findings demonstrate that players make significantly more pitch-equivalent high-effort throws than those recorded by documenting only the pitch counts. They recommend that a safe annual throw count should be determined in addition to the continued assessment of the number and type of pitches thrown by young athletes. As someone who has done a bit of research on this topic myself, and maybe more importantly, as a father and a coach of three young boys, this is an area of research that I am particularly interested in. The results of this study are certainly not surprising, but do add more data to the growing repository of evidence that we are really pushing the extremes of human physiology in these young kids when we allow and encourage them to compete in youth sports at the highest levels. So let's now welcome the senior author of the paper, Dr. Mark Richard from the Duke University, to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on, and we appreciate you taking some time this morning to discuss the article with us a little more detail. I find this, your arm sleeve data is, is really compelling, and it's pretty good data that you guys are able to collect. And as you've had a chance to reflect on this initial study and think more about the next steps, what is the extent of this data, and what's the ceiling that, that you can learn from not only Little League baseball players, but high school players, college players, and even MLB players? It's a... It's a very good question, and uh, I think that there is a lot that can be learned from all of these studies that have looked at the causes or potential influences on injury, especially in these young players. The results of this are uh, a little bit obvious in that the players certainly throw more than the pitch count would describe, and I don't think that that's a surprise to anyone in the results section. But the, the overall tone of the results suggest that we may not be measuring the right thing by just keeping track of pitch counts. And I think that's the spirit of the paper and the potential direction for future understanding and prevention of injury in these players. And one of the things I think that, uh, that came out from the paper is that not only do these players throw just incredibly more commonly than is counted in the, uh, in, the, in the total pitch count, but they make a significant number of high effort throws. And measuring and counting the pitches that they throw is probably not the only throw that matters. There's a significant amount of force, especially for these younger kids with a number of throws throughout the game. And that's one of the data points that came out that was really interesting to us. Yeah, it is interesting. And it's such a wide topic for research and further study and such an important one to try to minimize repeated trauma and overuse injuries in these young kids. As you know, I've done some research with Dr. Pennock and his team in San Diego, where they really have mastered some of the imaging and MRI evaluation of shoulders and elbows in young baseball players and shown that a lot of these kids are obtaining occult injuries to the shoulder and to the elbow that they may or may not be aware of that may have some long-term implications. They have met some resistance and had some difficulty identifying whose responsibility it is to bring this information to these organizations and to these leagues. Is this something that the parents should take responsibility for? Is this something that league organizers and presidents should be responsible for? Is this something that coaches should regulate 
Or is this something that physicians should really spearhead? I'd be interested to hear your successes and or failures in attempt to bring this information to light. Yeah, I think it's a, a community effort uh, between baseball players. When I say uh, when I say baseball community, I mean players, coaches, parents, organizations, uh, and the the physicians, the the team docs, the pediatric orthopedic surgeons, sports medicine surgeons, uh, hand surgeons, whoever's taking care of these patients as well. I think there's a, a group responsibility there. And, and as you know, there's been a number of studies that have looked at the uh, overall guidelines for pitch counts, and uh, they looked at it from several perspectives, and a number of parallel studies have done this. Uh, they, they first looked with the media, the people who are presenting uh, to our kids and to baseball fans about this. And it was really remarkable to see how few of the media uh, persons understood what Tommy John surgery was and that it's not a panacea and it does not make you better. Uh, and then they repeated those studies looking at players, coaches, and parents, and the numbers are really egregious. There's somewhere between 25 to 50% of players, coaches, and parents thought that pitch counts didn't matter. Uh, they thought that Tommy John surgery was something that you could have in the absence of injury in order to perform better. So there's a real information gap, uh, and, it, and it's pretty broad across the baseball community. So on the other side, how do we get that better? You know, it's, it's really parsed out into multiple leagues, little league, uh, travel ball, school organized, so middle school for a lot of these kids. And, uh, and I think the overarching group that has some um, responsibility, interest, and I do think that they really care about it is probably USA Baseball. And, uh, and I, do, I do a little bit of work with USA Baseball as a sport development contributor, and, uh, and they really do have this as one of their target items. They have a, a great interest in kids' health. They want people to play and enjoy baseball, and, and certainly it, it helps them to have them make it through unscathed and successful and to grow the sport. Uh, and, and that may be the, the group that has the biggest say in, uh, in helping to make sure that we guide our kids through the sport that they love uh, in a healthy way. Yeah, that's a really good thought and some important information to have. So what advice could you give to our listeners at the program that may have an interest in this, whether that be parents or coaches or orthopedists who want to get involved? Any suggestion for them on where should they should start? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the research, and you've done a lot of this research and presented very compelling data that the pitch count is not the only story. So I think that's the one that we hear about the most and the one that is easiest to regulate. But when you look at the pitch smart recommendations, there are some facets of that that are just that recommendations that are not enforced. And that seems to be where the data and a couple of your papers show that that's where the greatest risk is. And the aspects of that that seem to make a difference in relating to injury is really the overuse side of it. So uh, playing on multiple teams throughout the year seems to be an incredibly dangerous thing for these players to do. And I think a part of that is, is that one league doesn't know what the other league is doing. So I think we really have to be smarter about encouraging our kids to play in one league at a time and not have multiple teams where they're getting extra volume of throws in that could be potentially dangerous and 
a mismatch of the pitch counts that can't be accommodated for by the coach of another team. One of the other things that, uh, that the Andrews group in ASMI has suggested as a significant risk factor, and you found as well in your study, is that year-round baseball play is also a risk factor. And it, it really just gets to that idea of volume. The growing human skeleton needs rest, and the, the physical toll of repetitive stress uh, with very specific mechanics will take its toll over time. So these kids need three to four months off per year. And it's really hard to do in a culture of youth sports that doesn't understand that. So while it's easy to say and hard to do, I think the understanding that kids should be playing sports to have fun and they should be doing multiple sports for a variety of reasons to broaden their athleticism, to broaden their physical gains from that, to stay fresh in the sports so they don't have psychological burnout and, uh, and to stay healthy for all the reasons that we talked about. Yeah, you're exactly right. This is a multifaceted, multidimensional issue that requires advocates on several different levels. So I'd make a plug now to all of our listeners, whether you're a parent or a coach or just want to get involved, to get involved in these organizations, to use your education and to use your understanding of physiology and anatomy to really be an advocate for these kids to get involved with some of the regulations and to get involved with limiting the overuse injuries that we're seeing so often. And your study does a great job showing that it's not just a single facet and it's not just a pitcher, that the catcher makes similar high effort throws on a regular basis and that coaches need to understand some of these things and try to limit these overuse injuries. And then specifically regarding your study, what's the next step? These sleeves are an interesting idea and they can certainly give us a lot of data. Is there something we can do to look at your pitch slot to look at elbow torque generation, or is there other avenues that we can use these sleeves to get even more information and data regarding throwing mechanics and such? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think there are two avenues there. I think, uh, I think from, from the mechanic side of things, uh, I think we need bigger data and more data. And, and one of the things that you'll see with kids playing baseball, all my son's games are on an app now called Game Changer, and there are a number of apps, but we're, we're getting data on all of these kids, and all of that is put into uh, an app somewhere. And I understand that there are that can be a double-edged sword, and there are issues with privacy and those sorts of things. But we have access to data that can, one, help us keep kids healthy if we do it in a thoughtful way, and two, uh, let us look back and understand through the data the risk factors and the uh, potential causes of harm to, to these kids. So I think obtaining and evaluating that data is going to be really important. I think the challenge with the age group that we're talking about is that Every 12-year-old is not the same. Uh, one of my, my first case yesterday was a 14-year-old who is 6'5", closed growth plates, played basketball, and was bigger than I am. Uh, and that's not the average 14-year-old. So we have to have a little bit of an understanding of, of who we're taking care of when we make these, make these recommendations. But I think it, it really should be to the lowest common denominator to keep kids safe. And the, the challenge with youth sports, and especially baseball and pitching, is it's such a technique and mechanically dependent sport that that every pitch is not the same if you throw 40 pitches in a game if you throw them in one inning that's not the same as if you pitch over six innings and have some rest in between if you're throwing fastballs but no breaking balls that may be different Uh, fatigue is something that i think we need to understand how to measure 
And uh, there are some studies looking at that through EMGs and, and other changes in mechanics that uh, I think can be helpful in directing our research. And then on the prevention side, the other avenue I think that is very good is on the prevention side. And I know your studies have shown uh, that there's a loss of range of motion in the shoulder. And, uh, and there's actually some really good data showing that if you have a side-to-side -side difference in internal rotation and horizontal adduction, that you're four to six times greater to get shoulder or elbow injury. One of the parts of our study that, that didn't make it in uh, just because the numbers were low, but, but we had measured all the kids preseason and postseason for internal rotation deficiencies. And what we saw is that three kids over the course of the season had injuries and missed some time. And two of the three were the ones that had the internal rotation deficiencies at the start of the season. What we saw at the end of the season is that a different group of kids had internal rotation deficiencies. So those kids had resolved theirs through appropriate therapy programs. And I think it just makes us think a little bit more about prevention and the pliability of these kids. We, we might be at a stage where we can still help with some of the preventative things, like making sure that there's uh, not that internal rotation deficiency that we know causes trouble and guide these kids through uh, their, their season appropriately on a physical level as well. Yeah, there really is so much still to learn on this topic and so much good positive influence that we can have by being an advocate for these kids and understanding this overuse injuries more clearly. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us, Dr. Richard. Any last thoughts that you have on the topic before we let you go? Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about this with you, and especially with someone who has as much interest and passion for it as I do. I think that as a community uh, of physicians who care for these kids and care about this topic, I think we have an opportunity to collaborate and work together. Uh, and I welcome the opportunity to, to work with you or anyone else who who shares this interest. And I think uh, through teamwork and collaboration, we can do some great things. Thanks, Josh. Thanks everyone for joining us. We hope you've learned something and we'll see you next month. Mm -hmm.